This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Welcome to this special year-end edition of Live at Politics and Prose. In 2018, over a thousand authors visited Politics and Prose Bookstore. On this episode, we're going to highlight some of our favorites. Our first author is Michael Arsenault, a writer and cultural commentator known for his witty humor and sharp observations. This year, he published his first book, a memoir titled, I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and the Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce. When he visited us last July with fellow writer Demetria L. Lucas, he discussed the long and frustrating process of finding a publisher and how he fought to stay true to himself. What is this moment like for you? Because like, you're a journalist, you're used to somebody who's being behind the scenes, and now you have excerpts in the New York Times, Public Publishers Weekly is praising your book, Elle is calling it a must read, like, Lee Daniels is fanning out, like, what? <laughs> you told I, me that earlier. I, <laughs> I did tell you that, um, which is actually very confusing because I've been critical of uh, Mr. Daniels uh, in the past, but you know what? He's Mr. Daniels now. <laughs> <laughs> Secure the bag. Um, <laughs> uh, you know what? To be honest, uh, I I'm reveling in the moment. It's a little bit surreal. There's a lot of um, difficult things still happening right now in my life, but at the same time, I finally got something that I really have been wanting to do for a very long time. It was very difficult because the idea was you know, you're black and gay, that means double niche, which means no one cares. And like verbatim, one black publishing exec essentially tried to say that white people don't care about black people and black people are too homophobic. So here's like $3 if you actually want to write a book. Uh So um, it was difficult, but I feel really vindicated. Mm -hmm. Like I, all types of people have been reaching out the book has been doing well. Um, people are liking it. And even in whatever moment I have, people have been so kind mm-hmm. and just been like, it, your book has really has impacted me. And I just feel relieved. Like if nothing else, whatever's going on, I feel really good. I'm really proud about the book. And I'm so happy that people are liking it. They're actually showing up to see me talk. Mm-hmm. And that's nice. <laughs> you have important things to say. Yes, I try. <laughs> um Two years ago, we were at the Route 100, and you were talking about putting this book together. I think you were still working on your proposal. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and one of the things that you were struggling with was finding, not, even, not necessarily you finding your voice, but you had a voice, you had a point of view that you wanted to assert. Um, I think your quote is, I don't do sad gay. Yes. Um, and you were trying to push out a version of your story that people were not receptive to. How did you push through to get your voice out. Well, I'm working through my PG-13 versions of how I normally speak. Um, The thing about two years ago, well, two years ago, it was just like, you're cute, but I don't want to fuck. That was a thing I got from publishers where they were like, it's one thing to be told I don't like your stuff. I can work with that because I'm not for everybody. But everyone kept giving these really polite no's. It'd be like extensive notes about what they liked about the proposal. They were like naming people, saying all these lovely things, but then not making offers. So I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? So that was really frustrating um, because you can't do anything with like a detailed positive no. And so when I saw you, I was like frustrated and I'm thinking, what do I have to do? I think the, um, the issue is that I think if I were white, they would be like, oh, David Sedaris. Oh, Augustine. Like They would know the references. I think sometimes, particularly when you consume otherness, especially if you're black, 
it's usually consumed through pathology. Like it's so awful to be you. And there are a lot of dark moments in, of my life that I write about in the book, but it has a sense of levity. My spirit isn't meant to be sad. I don't shy away from the fact that I have these dark moments, but I try not to, um, I don't want to be consumed in some pathological way. And I say this with all due respect. I don't want white people to consume me and pity me. I'm very, I don't want to be another, don't get me wrong. I think sometimes a lot of life is difficult and we need to tell those stories exactly in that way. But if someone wants to tell it with a different spirit, if they want to say it with humor and mixed humor and pathos, you shouldn't think that, oh, because you're black, then that wouldn't be possible or that it wouldn't resonate with other people that you have to stick to this format it kind of reminds me of uh when i there's a new york times piece like two years ago they talked about like of the very few black women who have won or been nominated for oscars they all play basically impoverished or and or like a drug addict but that's typically what we're rewarded for when we reach these places and publishing you know we're, we're grateful this is here but it's very archaic and they wanted me to be like, I don't know, the Bernie Sanders of sissies, or they wanted me to be like <laughs> homosexual Ta-Nehisi Coates, or they would just be like, be moonlight, but even sadder. And I just, not me. That's not my story. Yeah, so thankfully someone finally was like, let me give you a chance to do it the way you want to. How did you decide what to write about? Or what? How did you decide how far to go? Because I got an early advance of your book and I read like, you know, a good 200 pages up until four o'clock in the morning. And I think I either text you or email you. It was like, has your mama read this? Because, you did ask that. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, because it's so it's so raw and it's so honest in a way that it's it's the truth, but it's also uncomfortable. Like, so right. what was your process? Um, you know, the thing is, I actually, believe it or not, left quite a bit out. So the thing is, when you're writing about your life, you have to include other people and you have to be cognizant. But you also have to be cognizant of the fact that in telling your story, it's not necessarily your place to be telling someone else's like total business. You need to be very respectful. Um, so one thing I wanted to do when talking about my parents was to be honest, but to be fair to them, um, because one part of my own growth and development was to forgive them for things that I felt like they were wrong were like done wrong to me but also in do, assessing what I've done and how I've contributed to that but I also wanted just to be fair to my parents because I do love my parents I think so often particularly when it comes to queer people and acceptance with their parents you guys get the after school special or you get like the horror flick and for a lot of us there's this gray area and how do you navigate that spaces and I wanted to be fair to why my dad the way is the way he is the way that he is I wanted to be respectful of how the role faith plays in my mom's life and that's why she clings to it to the point where we have a conflict but um, my mom has not read it. Um, that was my next question. She has not read it. Um, well, the thing about that is I wasn't afraid. It's just to be blunt. The last conversation we had about it a couple months ago, um, I have bigger ambitions for the book. I would very much like it to become something else. And thankfully, people are agreeing with me about that. And we'll see what happens. But in trying to talk to my mom about that, about being like from Harm Clark in Houston, not coming from money, knowing our background. I was like, wow, look at this moment. And like, like, even if nothing happens, isn't that great that like I'm actually here? And all she said was, well, if that's how you want to live your life. And I was like, oh, girl, I'm not doing this with you. So <laughs> we haven't talked about it since then. Uh, I do know my aunts have read it. My mom's sisters have read it. Um, they were supportive and they both said that I was respectful um, and they appreciated that and they thought I was fair but honest. Um, obviously, some of it is very hard to read. I don't know if my mom will read it. I've, it's my understanding that she is not 
trying to read it anytime soon, but whenever she's ready to read it, I'm happy to talk to her about it. But that there had there came a certain point where I just couldn't keep trying to force a situation. I can't force someone to meet me. I have to let them be where they are and hopefully things work itself out. But we do love each other. And now it's kind of like the spirit I wanted to capture in that chapter about my mom, who is the basis of the title, I Can't Date Jesus. Cause um, I Can't Date Jesus is basically a, a, a subtweet to my mom. Uh, it's a conversation we had where, and I say this respectfully, I think there are plenty of brilliant people who are religious, but sometimes religion can make brilliant people suspend their better senses. And what I mean by that is that um, it's particularly Catholic doctrine, but like a lot of Christian uh, denominations have this belief that, yes, you are born gay, but you, it's an affliction and to act on it is an affront of God. So ultimately, you're essentially asking people to you're realizing you can't help who you are, but they're treated like you're like in a regular gene, like soda, like an outlet mall. And so that <laughs> this idea, like if you act on your natural urges, that you might go to hell. So the idea that I'm supposed to not be full, not have pleasure, not lead a whole life, because I might get by, hit by a bus and go to hell, and that's a direct quote. Um, why? Why ask me not to be whole based on a maybe? And I personally don't believe God. I mean, I want to go down that road, but like there are plenty of theological ar arguments against a lot of the, the biblical tech people say. So I didn't go that heavy into it um, in the book, but this, yeah, it was silly. Like I love my mom to death. We have creative differences about um, the inner sissy, but, um, <laughs> but the reality is like, I don't feel anything is wrong with me. You can't say in one instance God doesn't make mistakes and another don't do that because God won't love you and go to hell. It just doesn't make sense to me. So during the conversation, she just was saying all this. And I was like, well, girl, I can't date Jesus. What do you want me to do? And so that is the title. Yes. What do you want people to take away from this book? Because in all of the press about it, it says, you know, it's, it's black, it's gay, it's Beyonce, it's religion. Um, do you have a different... Like, what do you want people to read this it's in? It's so funny. People actually from? think I literally am trying to start, like, a Beyonce church. Like, that's yeah. not... She's my Lord and gyrator, but, like, I don't literally worship her. <laughs> like, even God makes mistakes. In her case, it's, like, the first half of I Am Sasha Fear. So it's like, don't tell I said that. I'm going to tell the beehive. I'm going to tell Okay, beehive. look, about that, it sounds pretty, but I didn't want Beyonce as Sarah McLachlan. I'm a bird. I wanted Thought Bops. That's all. Uh, oh, I lost the question. What was it? <laughs> I started going to a testimonial. <laughs> what do you want people to tell Oh, um, I'm really simple about that. Like for me, all I ever want to do in my material is make people laugh and make people think. I don't really try to tell the reader what they should take from it. I'm just curious about what people pull from whatever I put out there. But um, I did write the book hoping, I wrote a book that I wish I had when I was growing up. Um, I wrote a book that I hope people who are like me that still struggle with that can at least find some connection to it. But if you struggled regardless of your specific identity, but if you've ever had to struggle with reconciling who you are with what you taught to what you were taught to believe that meant, then this book is for you and you can find something in it. And other than that, come with May and please buy it. But yeah. Like by all means pick it up. You know, when I read it, you know, obviously like I'm not I'm black, but I'm obviously not a man and I'm obviously not gay. But it resonated with me in like 
a very deep way, like the humanity of it, because I think everyone has family problems. And, you know, if you were raised in, in some form of religion, you usually have a conflict about you know, like what you were taught and how you were raised. Um, so I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, it made me want to pick up my pen again. So thank, thank you. you. That means that. a lot. Thank you. Like, yeah. It also made me want to burn my notebook. I was like, oh, I really need to step my game up because this is phenomenal. Um, I appreciate that. You know, I, I I loved your first book. I obsessed over your birthday post, so I appreciate that. Um, the thing is, like, I literally just wrote a coming of age story. I just happened to be like a country dude from Houston and who likes dudes. Like that literally <laughs> is it. Um, I'm glad people like when you say that. That means a lot because it really was hard to convince people that that my story could resonate in someone like people who are nothing like me could get something from it and be impacted by it like it really was a struggle initially to convince people that that could happen i'm like you particularly with black queer people you see them everywhere in culture whether they're visible or not like this idea that a human can connect to another human story if it's done well is again publishing is archaic but we're grateful um yeah i'll leave it at that i get, <laughs> well, I get in trouble have you ever dreamed of becoming a writer Kristen Hanna didn't. The author of The Nightingale and most recently The Great Alone visited politics and prose last February, and she shared the unusual circumstances that led to her becoming a writer and the long journey she took to find her voice. I was not one of those people who always wanted to be a writer. Uh, in fact, I really never wanted to be a writer. Um, and I, when I was, I guess, about... Um, 26, I guess, um, 25. My mom was dying of breast cancer. And um, so every day after law school, I was in my third year of law school, I would go to her hospital room and, you know, sort of hang out and talk with her. And, you know, I was so young that um, I didn't really understand the value of this time and how important it was. And so one day I was, of course, complaining about my life. I was taking a corporate tax class. And for someone who cannot add, multiply, divide, balance a checkbook, uh, it was terrible. And so I was complaining to my mom and I was saying, you know, I'm, this is a ridiculous class. I don't know why I'm taking it. And she says, you don't, don't worry, honey, you're going to be a writer anyway. And I thought, wow. Um, Someone needs to check her morphine drip. Something's going on here. Um, I sure my dad's in the corner going, oh my gosh, we just got her into law school. Don't send her on another one, you know. Um, but we started talking, and uh, for some bizarre reason, my mom said, let's write a book together. And so it was a really lovely way for us to sort of bond, to talk about something other than the, you know, the the realization that she wasn't going to be at my wedding and, you know, all of the things that I was facing. And so we decided to write a book together. Because we were mother and daughter, we immediately started fighting about what kind of book to write. <laughs> I wanted to write horror, and she wanted to write historical romance. Nowadays, you know, you can put those two together. Um, but in the 80s, that was not possible. So, you know, we argued and argued back and forth. And finally, you know, she says, I'm sick. I pick. We're writing historical romance. <laughs> and so I said, OK. So um, we started plotting this book. And um, so every day after my law school classes, I would go to the library. This is, of course, pre-internet pre, you know, computers and everything. And I would just Xerox pages and pages of research material. 
Uh, all we just des- we decided 18th century Scotland. I have no idea why. And so I would research dresses and shoes and ships and you know Scotland and all of this massive information. And then I would come back to her room and we would talk about um, how we would incorporate this and this book that we would write together. And I I actually uh, wrote the first nine pages on the day she passed away. So unfortunately, she did not get to read them. But I was able to sort of lean down and and say, you know, I started. I started writing a book. Um, But then after she passed away, I just, I had no interest in being a writer. And I certainly didn't want to write a historical romance about 18th century Scotland. And so I just put all of this material in a box and put it in my closet and went on with life. And it wasn't until sort of several years later when I got pregnant with my son that the whole idea of being a writer came up again. I went into labor at 14 weeks and was in bed for the duration of the pregnancy. So this was 1987 and the daytime television was horrible, (laughs) horrible. For those of you old enough to remember, Erica Kane was bedridden with Bianca. Um, this is absolutely true. Bianca is now like 45 years old. But so we were having the same bedridden pregnancy, and and I was watching her on, you know, TV in her beautiful gowns with all these handsome men, you know, coming by to see her, and I thought I'm not watching that. Changed the channel. Price is right, um, and. Uh, you know, when you get to where you're like yelling out refrigerator prices and you're actually excited about whether you've gotten it right, uh, you realize that you need to do something. So I thought at one point, I think my husband kind of poked his head in and said, well, what about that book that you and Sharon were going to write? Why don't you do that? And so I thought, that's perfect. How hard can it be? I'll write a book. I've got like several months. (laughs) And, um, So I pulled all the material down and I sat down and I wrote this novel from beginning to end. And it turns out that it was really easy. It was really easy to do. And I was so remarkably talented right out of the gate that I didn't need to edit at all. (laughs) I just was able to write this book, first sentence to last, no cross outs, no mistakes, no misspellings and finished it about a month before my son was born. And thought then, okay, what lucky agent should I send this book to? And I you know, did all my lawyerly research and I sent the manuscript off to the best romance agent at the time. And, you know, and then I took my husband aside and said, okay, we need to start talking about book tours and how we're going to invest, you know, my advance money and how I'm going to get help for childcare. I mean, I was just, I was so sure that everything was just going to fall into place. And of course, about, I don't know, a couple months later, I got a letter back from the agent and the agent said, um, and I quote, you may have talent, how could I possibly tell? Um, You don't know anything about writing a novel. And I thought, really? I'm pretty sure that I do. 
And so I kind of walked around and that's when I realized that was sort of moment one in this career of mine, um, of many moments, where I realized that writing was not like anything else that I had done before, that I was going to have to invest everything, heart, soul, everything. I was going to have to throw it all in the ring and I was going to have to be prepared to never be successful at it, you know, to never sell, to go to cocktail parties for two decades where I say, no, I haven't sold that book yet. Thank you very much for asking. And just sort of accept that, that, you know, you don't necessarily get to be a writer just because you want to. And that's when I sort of made the decision. And I think that's when I became a writer. I decided that I wanted to be an at-home mom. Um, I needed six years. I had six years until first grade to write a book and sell it. And so I sort of set out um, the task, I guess, of learning to write. Uh, the first thing I did was I went to a writer's conference in um, Seattle, I guess. It was the first time I left my son alone. He was about eight months old. And it was a big conference of famous romance novelists and the people who wanted to be novelists, I guess. And I walked into the room for the very first time and I looked around and I was mortified because everyone in the room was so old. Um, they were at least 40, May, I mean, at least 40. <laughs> And I thought, well, I just don't belong here. And so what I did, what I always do when I'm nervous, I went to the restroom. And so I went into the bathroom and I was gonna you know, talk to myself. And lo and behold, there was another woman my age in the bathroom who was also hiding out from the old ladies in the conference room. And we struck up a conversation um, and started talking and decided that we would critique each other's work. We still, we're still best friends, we still critique every novel, um, and we still can't remember how this conversation actually started in the bathroom. Um, because I'm really shy and she's unfriendly, and so we can't figure out <laughs> how we actually started talking. But that was sort of the beginning. And, you know, I took classes, I workshopped, I critiqued, I, you know, went to national conferences, and just kept writing all the time. I sold my first book when my son was two. And so then I wrote, I believe, like maybe five historical romances. Um, and I was writing, you know, I wrote the, f the first books with my son in a backpack, um, you know, on my back or, you know, in the playpen next to me or crawling around on the floor. And when he got a little bigger, I started working from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., you know, whatever I needed to do. I started finally trading babysitting days with the woman across the street so I'd have a full day of writing. And these, um, these years, the, the early romance years, the early motherhood years as a writer, really taught me the discipline it takes to be a writer because it's really easy not to write and it's really hard to write. So I learned that if I had 40 minutes to write, I needed to be productive from the minute I sat down, you know, until the minute I got up. And then from there, my career kind of, I think now that I've reached well past the 40 years of age that terrified me, um, I can see how my career sort of 
follows the arc um, of my life and, and, and my growing up. Um, I wrote historical romance for about five years. Um, and then I decided that, you know, my son was now in school. I had now been married for a while. I had gotten past, I think, the grieving for my mother, which was a big part of me wanting happy ever after um, romance novels. And, and I had learned enough to want to write something else, to sort of challenge myself in a different way. And so I set out to write what was, what is now, I guess, called women's fiction. And um, I met a wonderful editor. I was very lucky. And I just kind of kept learning and kept writing, kept writing books about young women's stories and w the issues that were facing myself and my friends at that time period. Um, if you knew me, your life story was fair game. You were, you know, you talk to me while I'm having coffee, it could be in my next book. That's just sort of the way it worked. And it wasn't until, um, I guess, probably about 12 years later, something like that, I had been writing women's fiction for a while. And I got to an age where my son was a teenager and I was having a lot of time to write and I was getting older and I started to sort of deeply miss my mother. And, you know, I don't even know how else to explain it. I just started really missing her again. It kind of comes in waves, you know, if you've been through that. And so... I did what we writers usually do. Instead of going to therapy, we write novels about whatever it is that bothers us. So I decided to tackle um, my mom's breast cancer. And the way I did that was to write a book where, in essence, I was her. So this was a book called Firefly Lane, which was really the first of my um, successful, I would say, successful novels. And... What I did not know that was really interesting, I was the age that my mother was when she was diagnosed when I started it, and I finished it at exactly the age that she was when she passed away. So I feel like, you know, she was, she was guiding me through that book. And that was the book where I, I started to see sort of what my future was going to be. And it was going to be writing about women writing about the strength of women, the durability of win women, the friendship of women. And if you've read that book, you know that it's very strong in time and place. I'm very interested in putting women sort of in context, um, historically, socially. And that was the book where I saw all of that for the first time. And it really changed my life. Um, I, and then for, like, I can't remember when that was, 2008 maybe. And so that was when I sort of threw off all of the, the shackles and the sort of preconceptions that my agents had, that my editors had, that I had about what I could do. And I started trying to write as big a books as I could dream up. And however, it wasn't until I think The Nightingale that I really found... Um, I guess my actual voice, my voice being a lot, of, you'll hear a lot about, if you come to these events, you hear a lot about a writer's voice. 
And I used to think, and I think it's very easy to think, that a writer's voice is about the words that they choose. It's about how they put a novel together, how they put a sentence together. Um, I believe now that it's much more about who you are and what your worldview is and what you have to say. And I think if you read three, four, five of my books, you will know at the end everything that I believe is important, everything that I care about. You'll know that I believe in friendship, you know, motherhood, love. I believe in sacrifice. I believe in courage. You know, you really know what it is I'm interested in. One of the most common questions that authors get asked is whether or not aspiring writers should enroll in an MFA program. When Alexander Chi visited Politics and Prose last May, he shared his thoughts on MFA programs and why he ultimately decided to enroll in one, in this piece from his book, How to Write an Autobiographical Essay. This is, uh, this is an essay called My Parade, which is um, a bit of a meditation on uh, my experience with my MFA was uh, written for an anthology that N plus one uh, put together called New York City versus MFA or something like that or MFA versus NYC. Um, I, I had become someone who spoke into that seemingly bottomless, incredibly boring controversy about whether one should have an MFA or not. And so this was my attempt to settle it and never speak of it again. When I'm identified as a fiction writer at parties, the question comes pretty quickly. Did you go to school for it? Someone asks. Yes, I say. Where, they ask, because I don't usually offer it. I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, I say. Over the years, I received two standard reactions when I say this. The first is a kind of incredulity. The person acts as if he or she has met a very rare creature. Some even challenge me as if this is the sort of thing people lie about. And some probably do, though that makes me sad. Some ask if I mean the famous school for writers, and there are other writing programs in the state of Iowa, excellent ones. But I know they're referring to the workshop, and so I say yes, though instantly I feel as if I've been made an imposter, hiding in the clothes of a great man. The second reaction is condescension, as if I have admitted to a terrible sin. To these people I'm to be written off, nothing I could do could disprove what they now believe of me. All of my successes will be chalked up to connections, all of my failures will prove the dangers of overeducation. If they ever like a book of mine, they will say, it's okay as MFA fiction goes, I guess. I suppose this is just part of the price I pay for having been one of those people, the doubting kind, sure that it was all bullshit. I got my first glimpse of Iowa City when I moved to San Francisco after graduating from college. I told the friend I was driving with to take the Iowa City exit off I-80 and we pulled into a truck stop. I just want to look at it in case I decide to go to school here, I said. This seemed safe to say sarcastically, like saying I wanted to go look at the White House because I was going to be president one day. I got out, pumped some gas into the car, looked around at the truck stop and said to her, it looks terrible, let's go. And we laughed as we drove away. Even then I felt a vague premonitory knock that would haunt me. Someday you'll eat those words. But I pushed it away. It was impossible for me to go to Iowa. I would never go. 
I told myself, and they would never let me in. At Wesleyan, the college I'd left behind, I'd studied fiction, writing, and the essay, and the three teachers I'd spoken to about my future offered strong opinions. Mary Robeson warned of studying writing too much. No one is writing anything like what you do, she said. You don't want to mess that up by taking too many classes. Kid Reed was dismissive. Don't waste your time. You just need to write. You don't need the program. There's nothing you need. There, just go write. Only Annie Dillard made the case for an MFA. You want to put off the real world as long as possible, she said. You'll write and read and be around other serious young writers. Two against one. The real world I moved to was San Francisco during the AIDS crisis. My activist friends from college were all moving to the Bay Area, getting apartments together, going to rallies, protests, marches, direct action, street theater. I saw the AIDS activism and queer politics movements emerging as a response to the fight of my generation and I joined with the seriousness of a soldier. My friends and I were people who knew AIDS could kill us all and we were fighting against those who believed it would kill only gay people. To this day, I can't tell you if we were trying to remind them of our humanity or their own. My time there felt more like a preview of the end of the world. I would stay two years. I moved to New York in the summer of 1991 for the love of a man who lived there. I had a job waiting for me, courtesy of a different light, the LGBT bookstore I'd worked at in the Castro. They had a New York store as well and arranged me an employee transfer. My new bosses set me to work cataloging the contents of a warehouse in Queens that had belonged to a mail-order gay and lesbian bookstore that a different light had acquired at auction. After the chaos of San Francisco, New York wasn't much quieter, but this job was. It was like going to sit in a padded room every day, a room padded with books. If I went to San Francisco with something of the seriousness of a soldier, I left with a soldier's bitterness. I had seen friends beaten by the police and hospitalized or arrested and denied their AIDS medication under the pretext that they were taking illegal drugs. I've been profiled by the police, baselessly suspected of plotting against them. When one of the groups I belonged to had asked me to find out if my then boyfriend was a police plant, and this hastened the end of our relationship, though I don't think he ever knew he was under suspicion, at least he never found out from me. I knew I wanted to leave. After all that, it was nice to sit alone in a quiet room every day, surrounded by books, and there were thousands of them. Books I knew, alongside books I'd never heard of, spilling off the shelves and out of boxes. They ranged from pulp pornography paperbacks to Vita Sackville West first editions to the works of the Violet Quill group. My literary heroes were mostly women writers and thinkers then. Joy Williams, Joan Didion, Anne Sexton, June Jordan, Sarah Shulman, Audre Lorde, Sheree Moraga, Crystal Wolfe writers who were often political as well as literary. Their work was in this room as well as that of their predecessors and teachers, Miro Rookeiser, for example, whom I discovered in that warehouse and whose poetry I still love. I hoped, like them, to find a way to fuse my work with my belief in the possibility of a better, more radicalized world. Slowly, I became aware that for me, a young gay writer who wanted to write, well, everything, poetry, fiction, essays, that this time in the warehouse was an education I could never replicate. And that the catalog I was creating was a catalog of what kinds of gay writing had succeeded and failed, what the culture allowed and what it did not. For every writer like Gore Vidal, Gertrude Stein, James Baldwin, or Susan Sontag, there were many others no one knew. The fame of the well-known writers seemed to me a protection against the void and thus worthy of study. How had they managed to survive against whatever it was 
that had erased so many others. Two of my literary heroes then, the artist David Warnerovich and the filmmaker David Jarman, were quite publicly dying of AIDS at the time, facing another, newer kind of erasure in the process, and I feared increasingly, from the work I'd been doing, that nothing was likely to save them except posterity. It was clear their impending deaths, the result of the epidemic, were in some way welcomed, if not wanted, by the government. AIDS was not God's punishment, but the government action around it certainly was the government's punishment, a kind of de facto death squad composed of the conservatives who were, incredibly, in charge of these public health decisions instead of the medical establishment, though the medical establishment had its own problems in the form of for-profit health care. Those exposed, those in danger of exposure, all seemed likely to die because it was too expensive to save us. Back in San Francisco, a certain beat poet used to come into the bookstore and move his books from the poetry section in the rear to the new books table up front. After he left, we'd move them back. Sometimes I'd let them stay a while. Other times, what I thought of as his pettiness angered me. But here in this warehouse, I understood him. Fame seemed like a terrible, even a stupid thing to want. But it also could protect you from vanishing forever, especially if you were a gay writer, already disadvantaged when it came to publication, much less posterity. Fame would push your book to the front table, whether you were there or not. The question was, as always, how do you become famous? The best and only honorable way to my mind was to write things people wanted to read. I'd made some progress on that front since arriving in New York. An editor at a publishing house invited me to lunch because he was interested in whether I had a novel based on a travel feature I'd written for a magazine. I was also interested in this question of whether I had a novel and had shown up to that lunch cocky with my hair in a blue James Dean pompadour, wearing a ripped black t-shirt and black jeans. My tweed jacketed new friend smiled in the dark pub as he sipped his water and we somehow got into the topic of the Iowa Writers Workshop which he had attended. Underneath my performance of San Francisco queer punk cockiness, I took mental notes as he told me stories about Michael Cunningham, one of the few male writers I admired. His story, White Angel, which had appeared in The New Yorker, was a part of his novel, Home at the End of the World, and was the stark marker against which I measured my own ambitions. The dishy story I still treasure from this chat is how Cunningham would go running at Iowa and smoke Galois's afterward by the track and how this led the other students to name him French Cigarette. After we graduated, we all moved back to New York, the editor said. This I especially stored away as important, all these writers from New York heading to the Midwest to study writing and then returning afterward. I knew Cunningham had punctured what I thought of as the gay glass ceiling, all too visible to me there in that book warehouse. I began to wonder whether his going to Iowa was part of that, and if it was, if it would work for me also. Such were the calculations of a young man who didn't yet know that gay men had been publishing in the New Yorker before him, that it guaranteed nothing, that there was no guarantee except the one possible if you wrote, and got what you wrote in front of at least one other person. <coughs> Everything was possible then. For years I had mocked the idea of applying to MFA programs, but after that lunch I became interested in a way I wasn't prepared to admit. I still made snide remarks about how no one was going to force me to write to a formula. I still said I didn't want to write fiction that said nothing about the world for knowing nothing about the world. Unspoken, like all those MFA students. And so there I was, out in the world. Wasn't that better? I made a point of saying, 
whenever possible that I refuse to spend two years being made to imitate Raymond Carver. This wisecrack about Carver was the supposedly damning critique of the biggest criminal of them all, Iowa. If it sounds familiar, that's because the formula for making fun of MFA programs, and Iowa in particular, hasn't changed much in the past 20 years. The fantasy of the haters is of a machine that strips away all originality, of people who enter looking like themselves and emerge like the writerly version of Barbie dolls, plastic and smooth and saleable, an army of attractive American minimalists. I was writing fiction without my MFA then and getting along fine without it, and I'd just written a story that I was pretty sure was my best yet. I was also pretty sure that it would never get published for being a mix of too many strange things. I did not feel like a New York writer, despite being there and writing, and worse, I had to work a lot to afford New York. My bookstore seller was so low, I sometimes had to choose between taking the subway and eating. A subway token cost as much as a bagel or a slice of cheese pizza, and so it was always a question of which would win. Some of my friends from college, who I would see periodically, proceeded with a self-assurance that I didn't feel into careers that seemed beyond my reach. I told myself I didn't have the connections they had to get jobs at The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Grand Street, the various publishing houses. And I didn't realize that if I knew them, it meant I had connections too. Wesley had been my entree into this world, but it was a world they had entered 18 years before here in New York or somewhere nearby. I was from Maine, the state where they had all gone to camp together, but I had never been to that camp. You're not really from there, though, are you? They used to ask, incredulous, as if I'd told them I cut a canoe out of the woods and rode it down the Connecticut River to college. I was only subtly aware of getting an education in social class in those moments, which usually just felt like embarrassment that I had to hide. While I didn't have their background, what I did have in those social settings were my looks, a sharp eye, a sharper tongue, and a penchant for making a spectacle of myself, which I would then use to observe people's reactions, learning from them about me, and about them at the same time. I could do this and be amusing enough that most people didn't mind. Also, the schools where all these people who knew each other went to had at least a few people like me around, which is to say gay, political, and an activist. When these connections I didn't know I had led to an offer of a job as an assistant editor at a startup magazine called Out, I took it. The job was the best way for me to take my mind off of obsessing about whether I would get into an MFA program because I had by then, applied. My reasons for applying were not particularly noble. My boyfriend, the man I'd moved to New York for, had also applied. We'd met at a queer nation meeting in San Francisco and begun an intense correspondence that turned out to be our way of falling in love. He was a writer also, and I liked the thought of us as two young, talented gay writers going it alone, together, outside the system. But my talented boyfriend was working temp jobs he hated, and while he made more money than I did, he didn't feel as talented as I thought he was. And he felt his education had gaps. He'd been a communications major, not an English major like me. And he wanted to know more about novels, poems, and stories. He'd never taken a writing class. He thought a program might help. And so one night after I finished a shift at the bar beneath his apartment, where I worked to be able to afford to ride the train to my own apartment and still eat, I went upstairs to find him on his bed, covered in MFA brochures. What are these? I asked. I felt betrayed, but didn't want to say so. I knew what they were. He replied defensively. He'd heard me crap all over MFA programs, and our short conversation made me understand how differently we saw ourselves and each other. In his eyes, I had a future without an MFA, and he wasn't sure he did. 
I was afraid this was his way of saying he was leaving me, a sign of some secret dissatisfaction. In the end, I chose three schools to apply to, three schools he had also applied to, based on which schools had produced the most faculty appearing in the brochures. The schools whose students were hired the most after graduation. These were the University of Arizona, the University of Iowa, and the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. I applied as a cynic, submitting the story I was sure was my best, the one I was sure that wouldn't be published, sure that they would reject me. If they're going to have me, I said, they need to know what kind of freak I am. In the story, a young clairvoyant Korean adoptee helps the police find lost children and is the only actual psychic member of an ad hoc high school coven. He has sex with his high school boyfriend, who is also in the coven and is possessed by a ghost during an informal exorcism ritual. <laughs> it's a great story. <laughs> the plan was that a program devoted to the creation of minimalist realism would have to reject me, and I could go on my way, my beliefs about everything confirmed, but that's not what happened. My first letter of acceptance to UMass Amherst came with an offer of a fellowship and a note from John Edgar Wideman. A day later, I got a phone call at work from a woman whose voice I didn't recognize. It's Connie Brothers from the IR Writers Workshop, she said. The letter is on the way, but I'm calling to offer you a place in the fall class and a fellowship. She named a sum of money. I was stunned. This is great, I said, remembering to speak, and then blurted out, UMass Amherst is offering the same amount. I have this thing that I call mouth of evil, where I just sort of say things that, on reflection, I should probably keep inside. Um, Did you say anything yet? No, I said, appalled at my indiscretion. Give me a day, she said, and hung up. I hadn't intended to begin a negotiation. I wasn't aware that negotiation was possible. (laughs) I was only meaning to be literal. How could I decide between fellowships of equal amounts? I wanted to call back and apologize, but the next day she phoned and offered twice as much and seemed entirely unconcerned. Thank you, I said into the phone. I'll speak to you soon. I hung up and announced the news, and my coworkers cheered and shook my hand. Before I gave notice at out, I spent a night walking the East Village thinking about my decision. I ended up at Life Cafe, an East Village institution where I splurged and ordered an almond milk latte and a veggie burrito. I had some copy to edit, an asparagus recipe, in fact. I was still not sure I would leave New York. If I moved to Iowa, I thought I would vanish forever, unrecognizable to myself and others. And the amount of money in the fellowship, even after they doubled it, was that really enough to live on? I wasn't rich here in New York, but if I stayed at the magazine, I knew I could get by. I could afford, for example, this meal I was having. I could make my way up the New York Magazine world ladder, a thought that instantly felt hollow. At the next table, a conversation about the new Versace leather skirts broke out. If a conversation is people all saying the same thing to each other. They were so heavy, they kept saying, so heavy. I wanted out, I knew then. (laughs) I wanted cheap rent and a fellowship and people who were talking and thinking about fiction. A time would come again when I would kill to hear people talk about Versace again. (laughs) But it was not then. Anything you did that was not your writing was not your writing, and New York provided a lot of opportunities to write, but also a lot of opportunities not to write, or to write the wrong things. There were things I wanted, like being a contributing editor instead of an assistant or managing editor. You didn't get there by working your way up. Contributing editors swooped down from above, made fabulous by the books they finished, which they didn't write, while chasing after other people's copy. 
My boyfriend didn't get accepted to Iowa, which disappointed us both greatly, but him more than me. It was his first choice school. But he was offered a fellowship by the University of Arizona, which was my first choice. The school where one of my heroes, Joy Williams, taught, and where I'd really envisioned myself until they rejected me. We'd both been accepted at UMass Amherst, but my boyfriend's offer was without aid. We drove up to Amherst as we thought about it and had lunch with John Edgar Wideman, who was, well, John Edgar Wideman, a profoundly intelligent, decent man, and a legend. But we knew by the time we left what we would do. We had been long distance before, and we were prepared to do so again. We each chose our careers over being together, which seemed best for our relationship as well as for our futures. We packed up our little apartments and had a last dinner where our friends sang Green Acres to us over a cake at Mary's in the West Village. And we made our way onto I-80 West to drop me off first. I'll stop there. Roxanne Gay needs no introduction. The celebrated writer and commentator visited D.C. last June to discuss her book, Hunger, as well as the collection, Not That Bad, which she edited. Gay, in conversation with NPR's Linda Holmes, discussed a number of subjects from writing about trauma, the debate around PC culture, and how to properly clap back on Twitter. We are going to talk about uh, about hunger and about not that bad. Um, I, I want to, for people who have not read the, the introduction to Not That Bad, which is a collection of writing from a variety of writers, um, can you describe a little bit what your original conception was of this collection uh, when you first started off to write it? Yeah, when I first proposed Not That Bad, I was thinking of a collection of cultural criticism that really engaged with the idea of rape culture and what it means to live in a world where the phrase rape culture exists. I was really hoping that writers would interrogate the phrase and the idea and you know, ask some really difficult questions about it. And then I started getting submissions. And many, most of the submissions were more testimony. And I realized that the anthology had to actually become something different. And instead it became more of a way of bearing witness to the ways in which sexual violence and sexual harassment affect people. Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about um, backstage is that I had a reaction reading this collection of um, it, it is so much trauma um, for so many people that I think when I read it, I thought, I do not know what to do with all of this. I don't know what to do with having read all of this. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes back to what you're talking about in terms of it really functioning as as testimony. I think oftentimes when we are presented with trauma, we want to do something with it or we want to know like what we can do to help or to fix it or address it in some way. And sometimes we just have to sit with it and sit with these stories and be uncomfortable. And if anything, I hope that what people take away from the anthology is simply increased awareness and expanded empathy for just how pervasive sexual violence really is. Yeah. Um, but you don't necessarily have to do anything, even though I do understand that impulse. Yeah. It, it made me think, actually, um, I don't know how many of you follow Roxanne on Twitter. <laughs> it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Um, it actually reminded me of some of the interactions that I've seen you have on Twitter, sometimes about much lighter subjects than this, 
where it turns into a conversation about just because I say something doesn't mean I want your advice about it. And I think that is true with big things, like when writing is really difficult for writers. If you say, I'm having a really hard time writing, people will say, write in 15-minute bursts, right when you first get up in the morning, right, right after breakfast. And, or with really small things, like the example we were talking about was like, I don't like kale. And all of a sudden, it'll be like, have I got a recipe for you? <laughs> and I think, again, it's that thing of the fact that I am sharing is not a request. Yes. <laughs> if I could tattoo one thing on my forehead, it would be, I'm not looking for advice unless I actually say I am looking for advice. I don't know what it is, but oftentimes when people share a problem, a suffering of some kind, and it could be a great problem or a small problem, there's this need to fix it. And I think sometimes we need to resist that impulse. Some things can't be fixed, and sometimes people are just complaining, like me, on Twitter. <laughs> I actually love complaining. Uh, I find it relaxing. <laughs> and I can't think of a medium more well-suited to complaining <laughs> than Twitter. Like, I have 140 or whatever, 280 characters, and so I'm going to tell you about this man on the airplane who won't stop talking. Okay, before we get back to this, I just have to talk about this. <laughs> there was this couple on the plane sitting right behind me in the first row of coach, and they were an older couple, and the wife was an Asian woman with blonde hair and lots of surgery, and it was, I got the impression that she was going after a certain look to please her very wealthy husband, who was badly dressed. And <laughs> he kept talking to her in a really condescending manner, like she doesn't know anything, and he was wrong about everything he was telling her. <laughs> and at the end of the flight, he was like, we're late, and we had landed 18 minutes early. <laughs> and I'm just still angry about him, and all of the bad information he was giving his wife. Just, I just kept thinking, however long she's been with him, like it's been a lifetime of bad information. <laughs> God knows what she doesn't know. But I mean, it's, it's funny because that is what I'm talking about when I say it. There are times when things happen and you just wanna, you just wanna talk about a frustrating thing. And I think it goes, as we were saying, from little things to really big and powerful things. Yeah. And it's almost like that idea of testimony. I don't want to suggest there's necessarily any such thing as like kale testimony, but I do think there's such a thing as just wanting to talk about your experience. Absolutely. Without, you know, it's what one of my friends calls the one-way conduit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm just doing a one-way conduit. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, a lo especially in books and in this book, it was a way for people to give voice to their experience. Uh, and many of the contributors had not been able to articulate what they had been through and how it had affected them in, in this manner until now. And it, it's important to just take that and, and, and sit with it and honor it without thinking, oh, let me give you some recommendations about how to deal with something that you've been probably dealing with for many, many years. 
Um, and it's, it's really interesting to watch people grapple in that space of wanting to do something, which I think in many ways does come from a good place, but is not always needed. The last time that I spoke to you, you were um, talking about uh, Hunger, which was a newer book then. And as I read this book and having read Hunger, which how many of you have read Hunger? <laughs> and having read Hunger, it, it strikes me that it's a moment in your career where you're spending a lot of time as a chronicler of trauma. But, but, and that includes an untamed state as well. Um, what do you think, um, what do you think it has, how has it changed you to spend that kind of time adjacent to trauma professionally as well as personally? <sighs> I, it has made me very tired. It has made me very, very tired. It was not my intention when I started publishing books to publish book after book after book in this vein. It just happened. And it's actually okay in terms of what I've put out there because I intended to put it out there. What has been really hard is the stories of others. Because when you write about trauma and when you write about fatness, people have their own experiences and they share them with you. And there's this need for them to share that I respect, but at the same time, I am having a more a difficult enough time carrying my own shit. And, and so it can be really hard. And so the accumulation of four years of hearing the worst things that have happened to women and some men, it, it, that is really hard. And there are just some days when I just can't, and like I get an email and it's this heartfelt, like 2,000 word email about something really horrible and I have to dash off a one line response because it's like I can't hold that and everything I have, it, it's just really difficult. And personally, it has sent me back to therapy. <laughs> um, but it goes with the territory, and I'm just trying to handle it as responsibly as possible. I always try to make clear to people that I'm not a therapist, because I'm not a therapist, and I always encourage them to, if they feel the need, to seek out help, if it's hopefully within their means, and I try to always send links um, to a range of resources, so that regardless of your economic situation, there might be something useful for you. Uh, it's just challenging. So one of the things I've learned from you about writing about trauma is to be entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder, you know, like you said, it can also be really tiring on you and also everyone reading about it. So I wonder if you've got other suggestions on getting writing about trauma published and out there, venues, people, or just strategies. Yes. I don't think there, I'm actually teaching a class about writing trauma at Yale in the spring of 2019. Um, it's something that I think quite a lot about, and I don't think there's any one way to go about it. I have found that using humor can help balance some of the darkness in writing about trauma, but for some people there is no humor. And I respect that, because there's nothing funny about trauma. Uh, in terms of getting it published, I think you want to make sure that you are not just providing testimony 
and looking inward and just saying, this happened to me. You have to find a way to contextualize it for a reader and look outward and give the reader a reason to want to engage with it and, and feel a sense of understanding the why of what you're writing. Um, that's really my own, my best advice. Uh, and in terms of getting it published, you just have to submit it pretty much anywhere that would be a good fit and where you think that your story will be respected. So often I see younger writers, and I mean younger in terms of experience, cannibalizing themselves because they think that's how they need to get their foot in the door. We see this particularly with women and people from marginalized populations. You don't need to do that. So wait, take your time, and make sure you're giving it to someone who's going to respect it, and also pay you for it, and pay you in something called money, <laughs> not exposure. You don't need exposure. You're fine. So yeah. And I'm wondering, what do you do to take care of yourself in these moments? And like, what can we do when we're watching all these like really horrific things that we as a country are doing? You know, I'm not super great at self-care because I'm 43 and I'm of a generation where that just wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important and I'm trying to figure that out right now. But one of the key things that I do is I don't watch 24-hour news. Mm -hmm. Nothing good happens on 24-hour news. And all of those networks, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, they're all the same. Mm. And frankly, they're all enabling the current administration. They're all looking the other way at some of the true atrocities. And so you don't need to go to reading, though. You don't need to watch that to be informed. And I also, when I'm online, you'll notice that I, I'm not tweeting about Mueller. I'm not tweeting about any of this nonsense. First of all, we don't know anything. And we're not going to know anything until he's ready for us to know. So engaging in the conspiracy theories and blah, 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 and just wishful thinking about the Trump presidency ending before 2024 is just not something I'm engaging in. And that really helps my sanity. I know for some people it helps them to be deeply engaged with all of that and to stress out, but it just stresses me out. And so I just try to limit my intake of information while still making a point of staying informed. I read the paper, well, online, but I do. I know what's going on in the world. I just don't think that we need to be constantly reading the news to know what's going on in the world and to care about what's going on in the world. Um, and oftentimes people read that as not caring, but you don't have to perform your caring. And I think that's part of what's exhausting so many people is this need to perform. And so just take a step back, especially when you're teaching this kind of material at work. You have to create a space for yourself at home. Otherwise, you are going to lose your mind. And in dealing with the current administration, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so we need to be vigilant, but preserving ourselves for the 2018 election in November, for the 2020 election, where hopefully someone will come forward magically between now and next year to run against Please. Trump. And if not, then who are we going to groom for 2024? Who's going to uh, run and win against whatever idiot they fucking field for <laughs> the Republican side? When you finished Hunger, when you wrote your last word on your notepad or laptop and you stopped, did you immediately feel unburdened or free? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, I did not. Um, 
no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I definitely felt like I was in a better place. And I didn't write hunger. I wrote hunger because I wanted to write about fatness in this world in a way that I had not seen fatness written about from within the fat experience. Um, and also as someone who struggles with it and struggles with self-image and how do you maintain positivity in a world that is so cruel. Um, but writing the book did force me to take a hard look at myself and to ask myself some really difficult questions about some of the behaviors I've developed over the past 20, 25 years. And that process ended up being far more cathartic than I could have ever imagined. And I was in a much better place after writing the book to begin to deal with some of my issues that I don't think I would have been in had I not written the book and forced myself to take that hard look. And so I don't think I felt unburdened, but I did feel like I was well positioned to reduce that burden by getting help. The question is that writers of color in the publishing industry are often expected to satisfy various tropes, like black women suffering or Asian immigrants suffering. And when we write beyond those narratives, we're not welcomed into publishing. So what advice do I have for writers of color who need to negotiate that terrain? Did I get that right? <laughs> um, you know, I think about that a lot. And I think if most of us who have achieved some measure of success are honest with ourselves, we played the game until we didn't have to. And so I think you have to pick your battles and you have to decide I encourage every writer of color, and I include queer writers in this as well, um, and gender, non-gender, and gender queer writers. Sometimes you have to just write what you want to write and just stand behind that and hope for the best because there are people in publishing who will embrace that work. Unfortunately, it's difficult to find those people. And so you have to make decisions about how ambitious you are and what you're willing to do to satisfy that ambition. And I don't judge anybody who makes a certain decision, who says, okay, you know what, I'm going to write an immigrant narrative first because I know that's what I need, and then next I'm going to write a space opera. Um, <laughs> which you shouldn't have to do, but sometimes that's what you have to do. But I think the more that we write the stories that we want to write that transgress the tropes, the more that publishing is going to recognize that we contain multitudes and that readers will be interested in those multitudes. I just read a book called Chemistry by Waiki Wang, and it's incredible. And it's partly an immigrant story, but it's really so much more. And I think that another thing we can do is subvert those tropes. And I think chemistry does that. And so sometimes it's good to find a way to subvert that trope where you're sort of giving publishing what they want or what they think they want, but you're also doing something much more subversive that readers are gonna recognize and appreciate. Yeah, I, I, I think that there are a few college campuses where comedians go and there's a certain culture on the campus where comedians can't just say any old thing that comes into their head and then the media picks up on it and makes it seem like the world is coming to an end. So I think in many ways the problem is being magnified by the media. That said, I do believe in the freedom of speech. Uh, I just think that we have to expand the conversation to recognize that what we're really talking about is that people want freedom from consequences. 
when you say <clears throat> when you say offensive shit, you know it's offensive. Yes. And it might be funny, but funny to who? And so a lot of times the comedians that are fighting this battle are like, and, and, and that's, that's the problem with the First Amendment. It's so great, and you have to take the extreme case and fight for that. You have to fight for the shitty joke that's homophobic so that we also have the right to write books about whatever else we want to write about. But I often just say, is that the hill you want to die on? Um, so I, I believe in the freedom of speech, but I, I just... I think that this fear of the First Amendment going away because white men can't say whatever the hell they want anymore is overblown. And it's generally white men who are the ones who are feeling... <laughs> who are feeling so encroached upon by so-called political correctness, which oftentimes is just treating each other with decency. So one thing I love about following you on Twitter is that you are the queen of the clapback. Yes, yes, yes. Um, why is it important for you to clap back is question A. Question B is how can those of us who are bad at it get better at it? <laughs> you know, the clapback thing yes. is funny. It's taken on a life of its own. <laughs> I was bullied a lot when I was a kid, and in high school, and in college, and in my 20s. I just hit the wall. I'm just tired of being bullied, and I don't have to be bullied anymore. Like, I have finally have a small amount of ability to push back. And so oftentimes I do it because I don't think people realize how much harassment and nagging black women face online. And so it's really important for me to bring the dirt to the light. It also just feels good. <laughs> Oftentimes, these people that step to me are very dumb, and <laughs> they, <laughs> they are, and they can't spell. And it's like playing t-ball. You have the ball on a stick, and even a four-year-old can hit it. And I'm that four-year-old. And they put the ball and they hold it for me. And so it's just, it feels good. It's petty. It just feels like, I'm not proud of it. Like a lot of times people are like, are you doing it for some noble reason? No. I'm doing it because I'm petty as hell. And so to get better at it, you have to first give no fucks. Yes. You really do. Yes. You have to spell check your clapback. <laughs> no, like, I read that shit four times before I hit tweet. Because you don't ever want to be caught with your pants down talking about spell your with an apostrophe and then you don't do that in your own shit. So you have to do that. And also I find mother's basement jokes to work nicely. Even though the other day someone was like, what about people who are having economic hardship and their parents are just nice? So, well, I'm not talking about you. 
I'm talking about the Cheeto-crusted motherfucker in his, you know, his mother's basement. So, yeah. Just think of like, and oftentimes I just think of the best vocabulary words I know. Pustule, separated, um, just oozing. Like, and I just try to put as many of those words together at the same time. Because when I was a kid, my brothers and I would play video games, karate video games, and it'd be like, finish him. <laughs> That's my ethos with the clap back. Doonesbury cartoonist Gary Trudeau stopped by to talk about his latest collection, Hashtag Sad, in September, and he shared this anecdote about Hunter S. Thompson. Um, Hunter Thompson, um, I never met. Um, some of you may know that the character Duke was, was loosely based on him. In fact, it was really the only true parody that, uh, that I ever created. Um, and uh, it, it took off so fast that in one of his books, he had mentioned um, that he'd always wanted to be the ambassador to American Samoa. So I took the Duke character and um, sent him to Samoa, and then to China, and then to Kuwait, and then to, and uh, none of this is, uh, you know, tracked Hunter's life. And it, you know, it stopped being um, Hunter, and uh, very quickly, within the first few weeks, a parody of Hunter and just became this other thing, this other character. But he never forgave me for it. I think he was <laughs> very amb ambivalent in a way. I mean, his, his speaker fees went, <laughs> went up uh, in, in the 70s because it, it, it contributed to his mystique. And, and I think he, had, he admitted that. But at the same time, he said nobody grows up wanting to be a cartoon character. Well, <laughs> he should have thought of that before he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, and, and, you know, of course, Ralph Steadman uh, uh, did wonderful, wonderful work uh, uh, to accompany his, his, his prose. I don't know if, how many of you have actually read that book. Everybody knows who Hunter is, but um, I read it with my girlfriend. We were, we were traveling, and um, I read the first page about the, you know, being in Barstow. the open car, going to Barstow, and, and all the, all the you know, what, what was kicking in and what wasn't. And, and uh, I just started laughing. And she said, what do you, and so I read it to her. And then I turned the page, and I started laughing again. I read it to her. And, I, and this went on for three or four pages. And so finally I said, just hold it. And I started ripping out the pages and handing them to her as I, and the two of us just spent the night just shaking. I mean, it was a brilliant piece of journalism, a brilliant piece of humor. And I never for a second believed any of it. But, um, you know, it, it, it's a... Uh, New journalism, <laughs> um, but uh, you know it's it was uh, an extraordinary uh, contribution to American literature. That and Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. After that, you know he 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 be, he, be, he did become a cartoon character, and I think f the care and feeding of that of of being the wild man I think must have been exhausting. And then he had this tragic exit that almost seemed preordained. Um, so. Uh, he threatened me a lot throughout his career. Um, he said he was going to set me on fire and rip my lungs out, and on and on. Um, but I'm, I, I'm sure he meant it in a nice way. <laughs> <laughs> 
Lori Moore is one of the most acclaimed short story writers in America. Her latest book, See What Can Be Done, is a collection of essays and Moore's first nonfiction book. When she visited us last April, she read this previously unpublished essay about her honeymoon. I have one, maybe two, authentically personal essays in this book. That is, they're not reviews of anything. They're not using events to sort of bounce off of uh, in any way. And this one was commissioned by a magazine um, that then killed it. So it's never appeared before anywhere. Um, they, they gave me the kill fee, which I always thought would be a great title for a murder mystery. <laughs> kill fee. Um, and then my, my agent thought it was so depressing <laughs> she didn't want to place it anywhere else. So I took my cue from her and I just stuck it in a drawer. But I pulled it back out later and I thought, I still think this is kind of funny. I don't know. It might not be that funny, but um, but it's true. So there's that. It has that going for it. Um, it's called, and in honor of Stephen Hawking, it's called "One Hot Summer or a Brief History of Time." A bride on her summer honeymoon. What could be more beguiling? Well, a younger bride to begin with, one less destined to wear an off-white suit at the ceremony. And what's with that anyway? The advertising of a lady's past, the beige and ivory taint of autobiography dyed like a scarlet A into the very threads of her dress. Why not say it another way and wear yellow, black, or green? Why not horizontal stripes? Chinese brides wore red, as did Chinese, excuse me, as did Jane Austen's mother, who later cut up her attire for outfits for the kids. Who wouldn't want something bright and cuttable? I'd always had a little trouble with anything called an institution. I was 34 and had been seeing the same man for four consecutive years and living with him for two. Not a record for anyone except for him. We spent the spring fretting. Should we get married? He felt we should in this moving through life way. It was what came next, which would in turn, of course, quickly introduce the idea of divorce. <laughs> We're all fiends for narrative plot, narrative plot, rising action. I wondered whether our marrying should really be this notch in the belt of time. Shouldn't it be rather an emotional and spiritual referendum on us? If we needed an event, we could, say, break up. Get married or break up. That's pretty much what it came down to. Love, love went without saying, so we didn't say it. Perhaps we were a little bored. Something we both seem to agree should probably occur. Though looking back, I'm not sure why. It was just motion, momentum. But with the tulips up, the air warming, and then suddenly the tulips down, petalless, bug-like, and leaning, Still, we remained undecided. We both understood I would not change my name to his, but privately, I felt this might not augur well 
for the success of our union. I suspected quite correctly, I think, now that those women who changed their names to match their husbands understood something about marriage that I was in the dark about. My boyfriend was of the school of thought that marriage, like a house or a car, was a necessary accoutrement of adulthood. I was resistant to that school of thought and wasn't really in any school of thought at all not a certified school of thought, not in a matriculated way. <laughs> to quote Daniel Handler's adverbs, I was letting my thoughts run around the yard rather than reporting inside. Or to quote from Richard Yates's The Best of Everything, a familiar little panic gripped her. She couldn't marry him. She hardly even knew him. Sometimes it occurred to her differently that she couldn't marry him because she knew him too well. And either way, it left her badly shaken. Summer was approaching, so all right, we would at least begin the process. Otherwise, I hardly needed reminding. I was risking the possibility of a life where, in the in case of emergency contact space, I would repeatedly be writing me. One noon hour after lunch in a nearby fish place, we strolled over to the county courthouse and there we filled out the application for a marriage license. The license was simply a permission slip, like a hunting license. It gave us 45 days to do the deed. In that time period, one could, quote, deer hunt, D-E-A-R, using the language of this state. That is what they called it there in the office. Um, although, also in the language of this state, what most hunters looked for, frankly, was a nice rack. <laughs> which this is why this is why my agent didn't which may have accounted for my new fiance's sudden clutching of his stomach the clerk behind her desk raised her eyebrows i'm feeling some horrible pain said the masculine owner of this new license looking faintly green seen it before said the clerk but not usually this fast <laughs> this was all his idea i said or mostly I think it was the fish, moaned you-know-who, whose name will say was Mike. I ate the same fish, I said. I feel fine. <laughs> you see, said the clerk. Mike was bent over in his chair, clutching his stomach, but he did not excuse himself to go anywhere else. And so this is what makes marriage possible. No one actually getting up and running away. <laughs> Although a few unmarried weeks followed in which some discussion ensued, I don't really call, recall any of it. The next thing I do recall is getting up and dressing in an I'll-be-damned cream-colored suit, cream suit. We were on our way to the county courthouse to get married that morning with one friend and one clerk as witnesses, and then we would be getting on a plane, flying to Seattle, and renting a car so we could drive down the small Pacific Coast Highway to Los Angeles. This would be our honeymoon. Outside in the judge's office where we were to be married, a camera crew had assembled, all sitting wearily on the corridor floor with their equipment. They were from 60 Minutes and were apparently waiting for us. I didn't know your short stories were that well known, exclaimed Mike, <laughs> looking proud and amazed. Yes, well, I said, not wanting to disappoint him so soon. Who could these people, what could these people want? We were, we were here earlier in the week to do a story on the governor's Wedfair program, they announced. Those of you with some familiarity with Wisconsin may remember that. Um, 
but we left without getting footage of an actual welfare couple getting married. (laughs) We just need some footage, so we had to fly back last night. We heard a marriage was scheduled for this morning. Us, I asked, but we're not on welfare. That part doesn't matter. No one will know that. We just have to film two people getting married in this building. This particular parsing of reality troubled me. If they were going to pretend any couple was a welfare couple marrying to increase state benefits to themselves, as per the governor's murky thinking on the matter, thinking that briefly went national, why not also save on airfare and pretend any building was this building? It was a generic municipal building for 10 seconds of footage. They didn't need this one. If something was already half a lie, then it was really a whole lie. So make it a whole one. The crew looked bleary, as if having just concluded a blistering gig with National Geographic. My new soon-to-be husband's face brightened. We'd get to be on TV, he said to me, clearly game for this. That he was capable of being game for most anything, I realized, was the reason we were getting married and the reason we would be divorced 10 years later. But it could not be a reason for our being on 60 Minutes as an ersatz welfare couple. God, no, I said. The crew looked devastated. The judge's clerk shrugged, and my husband-to-be then tried this angle. It would be funny. It could be, said the head of the crew, hopefully. Although Mike would have donned a big rubber suit to play a betrothing walrus on Wild Kingdom because it would be funny, I could not participate. It would be bad luck, I said. No. Really? Really. She says no, said Mike. She says no, said the clerk to the camera crew who sat there grumbling and tired. The bride says no, said the judge himself, standing in the doorway. And that is how my marriage began. (laughs) The signing of papers and saying of vows was very officey and took place under bright lights with no big city. A sweet little orchid was placed into my hand by someone. A picture I still have shows me with my hair clipped up, a way I almost never wore it unless cleaning something. Soon we were on a plane where we were very quiet, not knowing what precisely we had done. We stared out different windows and took our respective naps, awaking to the same new fact of our lives. I thought of the James Taylor song, There We Are. Here we are like children forever, taking care of one another. I had just gotten married with no music at all. I then thought of the Dorothy Parker story, Here We Are. So how does it feel to be an old married lady, says the brand new husband in that story. Oh, it's too soon to ask me that, says his new bride. Well, I mean, goodness, we've only been married about three hours, haven't we? And here, the husband studies his wristwatch as if he were just acquiring the knack of reading time. We have been married exactly two hours and 26 minutes, he announces. My, she says, it seems like longer. (laughs) When we landed at the Seattle airport, the first thing I noticed were the signs and public address system announcements in Japanese, which seemed to me, to me another clue that marriage might involve a language I didn't actually speak. 
I sort of noticed my new husband looking around at all the blondes. Wisconsin had been very blonde, but was less so now, and perhaps Seattle seemed a blast from the Scandinavian-American past. But that hankering outward was perhaps a necessary gesture, a final wave farewell to all the others. Why else do so many honeymooners head for beaches? We rented a car, stayed at a nice hotel, ate soft-shell crab, and phoned our parents. You eloped, exclaimed my mother, as if she were impressed. I guess we had eloped, though I, I didn't really understand that then. There'd been no ladder up to the window, no dashing off into the night. I hadn't really thought deeply from the parental angle about our getting married this way, and now I regretted not having given it a longer, harder contemplation. I told my father about the 60 minutes thing, thinking he would find it amusing. You should have gone on TV, he said. Then at least I could have seen you, since I didn't get a chance to give you away. He didn't sound angry or even all that sad, just sort of practical. But we would have been posing as a welfare couple, I said. I thought I'd been saving him money not having a real wedding. It might have helped the sales of your books, he said, in a, sit a situation he always inquired about worriedly. We'll have a fancy party of some sort when we get back and invite everyone, I said. Which we did, during which my husband never put on shoes, just wandered around in his socks drinking beer. That's in parentheses, I don't know. <laughs> this piece never got edited, so I don't know. Maybe the parentheses should be removed. The next morning we had breakfast, took some sarcastic photos of the bed, unmade and strewn with the morning's post-intelligencer, a, news a newspaper whose very name seemed hopelessly indicative of the occasion. <laughs> and when we checked out, we bought the bathrobes as souvenirs. Good for giving away to goodwill a decade later. We rode some ferries on which I grew woozy, drove around the rainforest, which was a mossy, magical land containing every possible hue of green. Although it was a national forest, Japanese companies were already logging in it. We would hike and drive and stumble upon denuded patches full of sunlight and machinery and noise. Then we headed south, keeping the ocean, which we never got to see in Wisconsin, in sight on our right, visiting otters and seals and dune buggy gatherings along the Oregon beaches. We stayed at bed and breakfasts that were once churches, this to compensate for having married at the county courthouse, and in general tried not to quarrel. It was a road trip, and we had brought only two tapes. Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time... <laughs> and another one called Jazz Wolf, which featured an actual howling wolf accompanied by some alternately plaintive and jaunty jazz. We'd drive along wordlessly, listening to the howling of that lonely wolf, its own brief history of time. The Stephen Hawking we could only understand for about five minute stretches, and then we'd have to rewind to listen to it over again. At this rate, the history of time would not only be far from brief, it would be a never-ending driving hazard. But I didn't want to proceed through the tape uncomprehendingly, so there was much rewinding, and then ultimately the frustrated substitution of Jazz Wolf. <laughs> 
oh, let's just put on Jazz Wolf, <laughs> became a kind of refrain for our stupidity, something we carried on into the future with us into our marriage. Every marriage needs a refrain, and let's put on Jazz Wolf was ours. We drove down the winding Highway 1, which vertiginously hugged the California coast, producing more wooziness in me, despite the great beauty of everything. Beauty, after a while, you just don't see anymore if you're immersed in it constantly. The worry of car sickness replaced it, and I didn't know whether we would be driving slower, should be driving slower or faster to get it all over with. Marriage. Following our guidebook, we drove through the giant redwood tree you can drive through. You've probably seen those pictures. Um, and in other parts of the woods, we got out. Our photo album shows me hugging the trees and my husband urinating near them, <laughs> which should tell you something, but I'm not sure what. In Mendocino, we stopped and had lunch and bought souvenirs, though the whole place seemed preserved in time in an artificial way. The charming pothead still roam the village streets while the actual makers of the gift shop ceramics remained hidden to avoid possible detection and derision. Crockery mockery, I said. Still, I thought I saw a whale, which is the kind of thing you hope for your first summer as a married woman. Eventually, after a cool, breezy day and night in San Francisco, the original shining city on a sea, where we lit a gas stove in our room and spoke incessantly of earthquakes, failing to leave our hearts or wear flowers in our hair, we turned inland and drove across the desert, which was eerily lunar, day or night, beneath the pitch-black sky, covering us like an iron skillet lid punctured by BBs, I swore I saw UFOs, perhaps near one of the several military sites sitting spookily out there in the sand. In the daytime, litter blew apocalyptically among the cactuses. My husband wanted to go to Las Vegas, and I kept making hooker jokes, which weren't really very funny. We passed signs for Death Valley, signs for the Funeral Mountains, signs for a town called Needles, and one sign that read Zizix Road, ZZYX Road, maybe some of you have been past that, which I think led to Needles, and we stopped so I could take a picture of that. Once we were in Las Vegas, in an absurdly cheap room, the city was not yet the opulent place it had become. It has become now. I remained upstairs reading while the mister went downstairs to gamble in the casino. No more hooker jokes. Let's get out of here, I said in the morning, and we drove the next day to Los Angeles and ate Italian-Greek fusion dishes with artichokes and goat cheese in them in a hip, bright place. It seemed the beginning of a kind of food I'd not experienced before, cooking that was over the top and unnecessarily delicious. We roamed the streets of West Hollywood and tanned our arms in the sun. And then we flew back home to the Midwest, to our little blue house where we'd lived for years and would live for a few more, and where our cat was waiting and happy to see us. The honeymoon was over, but that was okay. <laughs> the the Kilfee was very good on that one. And the magazine completely went under, which is why I, I don't even remember the name of it. But has that ever happened to you guys? No. <laughs> 
Polish writer Olga Tokarczyk won the 2018 International Man Booker Prize for her novel Flights. In this clip, she discusses the novel's English translation with the book's translator, Jennifer Croft. Thank you, Jennifer, for to be ready to read because I forgot my glasses. <laughs> um, thank you for coming. This is my first day in the United States, and um, we are starting from um, Washington, D.C., and going to the to another places. Um, first of all, I should mention that this book is quite old. It was published in Poland 10 years ago, uh, which means that it was uh, it has been writing uh, even earlier, like 12, 13 years uh, old. Um, so in some aspects, this book is uh, not so hot, I would say. Um, the world is changing so fast. So for instance, it's uh, quite painful for me that in this book, there is uh, this is a book about mov movement, about traveling, about in being in move on many aspects. But uh, it's it's painful for me that uh, there are gaps and lacks in this book. Uh, for instance, there is there are not refugees, there are not people crossing this, the Mediterranean Sea on the boats. Because um, 12 years ago, I wasn't aware that such a thing can exist. Um, but still, the history of uh, this book is uh, very intimate. Um, I had a quite uh, dark time in my life. Uh, I decided to divorce and I decided to change my life. It is such a time uh, when we are crossing 40s when you dream about changing everything. So I mm, spent all my money for traveling. Uh, and then, um, mm, of course, my first reaction for traveling was to, to, to left some kind of memoirs. I thought to write memoirs from tr my travels or a kind of book which will be something like a uh, chronic chronic of tra traveling but then it was a moment that i look for a form how to um, express uh, such a feeling beyond move all the time and then i felt that the old forms of writing about traveling are not enough for me that they are too narrow that traveling nowadays, it's something different than it was in 19th century, century, when you are traveling from one point to the other and you are on the ground, so you are a witness of changing landscape and you are changing your body in a way, traveling. Now traveling is just jumping rather. It is like zipping in the, in the, in the television for channels. You are Yesterday I was in Poland and today I'm in Washington. So it's completely different experience. And then I started to think about how to find a kind of um, um, right form for such an experience. I started to write small fragments connecting, connecting with, uh, with uh, which, uh, each other. 
and trying to hang, hang them together by senses, plots, uh, meanings inside the books. And of course, I was devoted to my obsession during this time because crossing the, my 40s, what the, the main obsession was that uh, I'm getting old, um, my body, of course, and um, the travelers as a traveling bodies and this endless human tendency to preserve our bodies from cosmetic medicines uh, till preservation, the history of preservation of, of human body. And that was the starting point for, for this book. Mm, and in a way, this, um, this obsession of, uh, of preservation of human body, the body, the curiosity, um, was the, the fundament, the base of, of writing this book. Also, the, the, the idea which, uh, which shocked me, in fact, that uh, we know so many things about the outer space, that we know we have a maps and uh, books about um, universe, and we know about many things about planets, uh, about far countries and so on, and we doesn't know anything about our liver, let's say, or our stomach, how it works, how it looks, really. So mm, soon my travel became a traveling from such a important places for me, like museums of uh, cabinets of curiosity, uh, and I was happy and I was lucky to can travel along my obsession in a way. So that was the beginning. And yeah. That's a, that's a really great overview of the book. So I'll just read now maybe a short fragment, then maybe another page to give a sense of how, um, of Olga's breadth here, of the uh, curiosity that she thro shows throughout the book. Um, and I'll start with a fragment called The Tongue is the Strongest Muscle, which is about the English language, but also about the body. There are countries out there where people speak English, but not like us. We have our own languages hidden in our carry-on luggage, in our cosmetic bags, only ever using English when we travel, and then only in foreign countries to foreign people. It's hard to imagine, but English is their real language. Oftentimes, their only language. They don't have anything to fall back on or to turn to in moments of doubt. How lost they must feel in the world, where all instructions, all the lyrics of all the stupidest possible songs, all the menus, all the excruciating pamphlets and brochures, even the buttons in the elevator are in their private language. They may be understood by anyone at any moment whenever they open their mouths. They must have to write things down in special codes. Wherever they are, people have unlimited access to them. They are accessible to everyone and everything. I heard there are plans in the works to get them some little language of their own, one of those dead ones no one else is using anyway, just so that for once they can have something just for themselves. 
So that, that yeah, go ahead. No, so the, the book consists from such a small text. Some of them are, there is one, I think, which is one sentence only. And some of them are longer, and there is a, like a two chapter longest story about a guy who lost his wife for a while and a child and trying to understand what's really happened in Croatia. Um, my idea was to, to, <clears throat> to create what I called constellation novel and it sounds very uh, serious, but in fact it is irony in this, in this expression. Constellation novel, this is the situation when you are staying on the porch um, during the evening and you, can, you, you are looking uh, to the sky and you can see the points on the sky, bright points on the sky. And then you know that this is a chaotic uh, order of a universe, but your brain, your mind is perceiving this chaotic order in a very special order called constellation. And these constellations are, the, the meaning of these constellations are taken from our uh, mythology. So you cannot really see the sky as a chaos because our brain hates chaotic orders. So this is uh, your task to, to put an order into this chaotic uh, constellation. And then this is a task for a reader, this book, because uh, I only prepare this, like the ba base, the fundament, and you, reader, you have a much, sometimes you are much clever than me, so you have to put your own order into it. And looking at the reviews um, of this book, I noticed that uh, there is no one person who can read this book at the same manner. That every single um, review is different and people can perceive the different things and in a different collection of, of meanings, which is the big praise for me because, uh, yeah, it is a kind of endless, um, endless communication between me and you. So that was my idea from the beginning. And finally, journalist and author Adam Hochschild has been visiting politics and prose for nearly 20 years. When he stopped by in November to discuss his latest book, Lessons from a Dark Time and other essays, he read this piece about the joys of reading and collecting physical books. I want to end on a more positive note by reading you uh, a very short piece that ends the book. And perhaps and it's, a, it's an appropriate thing to read because it's a piece about books, and perhaps it's an appropriate thing to read here when we're in a sort of wonderful temple of books. So let me just read you the piece that ends the book here. For the first time, some American school and college students are being issued electronic books instead of printed textbooks. Their arrival feels to me not like technological prog progress, but like the first notes of a death knell. In a society in which relatively few people read books for pleasure to begin with, still fewer will do so if they do not encounter books, real books, as students. There are many reasons to love the old-fashioned paper book. 
that promising virginal crackle of the spine as you open a new hardcover for the first time. The sense of accomplishment as you look at the shelves of what you've read and of humility as you look at the shelves of what you haven't. I've been feeling sad about the imperiled state of printed books for an additional reason. What books tell us about the person who loves them? In this way, books give a small measure of immortality, not just to writers, but also to readers. Each year, my wife and I spend time in what was once the summer home of her late parents, and the room where I work is lined with her father's books. He was a career foreign service officer, a staunch Cold War liberal, and a man who believed that the best of human virtues were incarnated in Puritan New England. His picture of the United States was far rosier than mine. But whatever the limits of his worldview, what strikes me now is how much of it I can still see in the books on his shelves. On his shelves. They are a portrait of his mind. There are books about the various places where he served as a diplomat, Ghana, New Zealand, Israel, Tunisia. For each time he was sent to a new country, he read up on it enthusiastically, looking for upbeat parallels to the New England experience. There are books by the hundreds about the United States, for the most part, portraying it as a country where everything works as wonderfully as the founding fathers planned. Their titles alone tell the tale. This glorious burden, chance or destiny, the first new nation, this is the challenge, the discipline of power. Sometimes a slip of paper marks a passage he especially liked. Some of his books are from a phase when he read biographies and memoirs of the famous. No dissidents, no women, but many presidents, great writers, and Supreme Court justices. He was trying, he once told me, to figure out what were the early life experiences that made people into great men, a phrase he always pronounced as if both words were capitalized. Other volumes clearly represent less what he actually read than what he would have liked to have read, for books also form portraits of our unfulfilled ambitions. An ancient leather-bound set of Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, a huge family Bible, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and Emerson's Complete Works. None of them have the creased spines of books that have been frequently opened. Finally, there is his beloved collection of books on New England, including the 795-page Genealogical Dictionary of Maine and New Hampshire, which I pull out every summer to try to imagine the mysterious controversy alluded to in its preface. This acknowledges the contributions to the volume made by one Charles Thornton Libby, who, quote, acted as a consultant in problems in which he was known to have a personal interest, but his deep-seated conviction that the book should not be published at all did not make for an entirely happy situation, unquote. <laughs> the point is this. I can look around the room and see a landscape of my father-in-law's passions, quirks, and beliefs. His four grandchildren, one born after his death, will be able to do this for years to come. Collections of books, large and small, transcend time. Sometimes it is just a shelf of books over a bed. 
How many times is a guest in someone else's house, staying in the room of a son or daughter no longer at home, have I looked through a bookshelf for clues to the tastes and dreams of the person who once slept here? Such voyeurism is not a forbidden one, but one to be celebrated. It's not just the writing of books that expresses who we are, but also the freedom to collect them, to arrange them, and to enjoy the collections of others. Once a man was visiting our house who had recently been released from many years as a political prisoner in Pakistan. Sitting in our living room talking, at one point he paused, jumped up, and began running his hands over the books on our shelves. You must excuse me, he apologized. I have not been able to do this for years. So, thank you. Thanks for listening to our year-end wrap-up. If you enjoyed any of these segments, please visit us at politics-pros.com, where you can find all of the books that were discussed and much, much more. We'll be back again in 2019 with even more discussions about the latest books from some of the biggest names in literature, journalism, and politics. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.